0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: I am doing fantastic today, Tim. Thank you for asking. I know everyone listening will be doing just as fantastic once they hear this really thought-provoking conversation that we have with a couple of new friends who have done some really great work on a show and on the story of a young woman who is currently serving time in prison. But, Tim, I feel like I'm in prison not knowing how you are. How are you? Thanks a lot for asking. I'm
0: doing great. And I'm also very excited to introduce this conversation with Liz Flock and Kristen Lepore. They have worked on the podcast Blind Plea, which it really is a hit podcast. And it is about Devin Gray, an Alabama woman who is in prison for killing her boyfriend, John Henry Vance.
1: And by all accounts, he was very abusive to her. And the story unfolds in the show Blind Plea. And like you said, it is a great show. And you learn a lot in this conversation. And if you're not sure what exactly a blind plea is, just starting there is a good point before entering into this interview. And if you haven't listened to the show yet, find out what that is, and it will probably take you a little bit by surprise. And
0: what shouldn't take you by surprise is CrawlSpace Premium. And you can now subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not an Apple user, you can subscribe at crawlspace.supportingcast.fm. What you get is ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show. And it's all bundled with Missing and our new podcast, Dark Valley.
1: And speaking of that new podcast, Dark Valley, it does air every Friday, unless you are a subscriber, and you will get the entire first half, and now you will get the entire second half, except... For the last episode which we are going to give you early but it's going to be probably like a week and a half to two weeks before the public so it's not going to come in that second batch it's going to come just a little bit after because i personally feel like episode 11 needs to be processed for a little bit but there are multiple reasons why
0: all right let us know what you think on social media follow us at crawlspace podcast or crawlspace pod we're going to take a quick break for commercial here and we'll be right back with liz and Kristen. And a thank you to our sponsors, Back to the Program. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth and Kristen. How are you both doing today?
2: Good. Yeah, Thank you. How about you guys? Yeah,
1: we're doing great. We have a heavy hitting lineup here. Liz and Kristen. I'm kind of intimidated right now. You should be. Yeah. Oh, Liz <laughs> says I should be. Great. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to join us. So, you do the hit podcast
0: Blind Plea. But before we get into that, I would love to learn a little bit more about both of you.
2: I am a journalist, I cover gender and justice stories. So, often about women in the criminal justice system. Lately, that's meant a lot of stories of women who defended themselves in abusive situations. I have worked across a lot of different media, TV, print, online, but this is actually my first podcast. So I'm learning a lot about the world of podcasting. It's been like an amazing experience, actually, just to be able to tell stories in this format because I think you can just go so much deeper and tell stories with so much more nuance than a lot of other mediums. So I really love that. I think this podcast in particular was really exciting to me because it's investigative and there was a huge team working on it. And so we got to just dive really deep over the course of a whole year. And that's my favorite kind of story that you can like really spend time on and, you know, really go down every nook and cranny or crawl space. <laughs> and
0: um... yes, thank you for that.
2: Oh, so, yeah. Go ahead, Kristen.
3: My background's also in journalism. Uh, way back when I thought I was going to be a magazine journalist before print was dead. (laughs) And so shortly after that, I went to public radio and worked in newsrooms for a long time. And I think after the 2016 election, I was like, all right, I got to do something different. And that's when I got into podcasting. And so a lot of the podcasts that I've worked on are narrative long form. They tend to look at systems, like kind of asking the question, like what the F is going on here? And usually through a feminist lens, I think usually the answer to that question is it's usually like classes, or sexism or racism or all three. And so those are the stories that I gravitate towards. And um, like Liz said, Podcasting is kind of a dream for someone who wants to work on long form stories um, because you have just so much space to explore.
1: I liked how you said that it was a more nuanced way to investigate and to broadcast these stories. And I'm wondering, between the both of you, I'm wondering if you ever see that as like a hindrance that a podcast might get lost in the mix of all of the other investigative podcasts out there. How do you try to like stand out from the crowd there?
3: Sure. I mean, I think it starts with the story. Like, I could talk a little bit about how. E uh-huh. aí Lemonada and Liz joined forces. And we talked to a lot of journalists who pitched us a lot of ideas. And I think this story was different in a lot of ways. It wasn't just an idea. It was a fully formed story. Liz had a long-standing relationship with Devin, who's the main subject of this story. And I think that was so important that they built this relationship over a long period of time. That really sets it apart. The fact that we have had so much access and so much trust, so much phone tape, but also we ended up seeing Devin in person in prison and you don't always hear Voices from people who are incarcerated. I also think just the fact the blind plea angle in this was so compelling because no one had heard of blind pleas before, and definitely our marketing team jumped on that. Like obviously it's the name of the show. You know, whenever we're out and about talking about this show, that tends to be something people always ask follow-questions about. Obviously, the story also had a race component that was really like, again, what the what the F. Like this this story needs to be told. And I think Devons fell through the cracks. In a lot of ways like it wasn't really covered by the local media and so there was just so much opportunity to tell a story that hadn't been told
0: Besides like the length that you can dive into this and the time you can spend what are the differences in mediums what is the power of telling this story via the podcast medium
2: This story I actually was thinking about doing as a print story cuz I heard about Devin's story like 3 years before this podcast came out I heard about it when I was doing another story about a woman who killed a man in an abusive scenario. I just felt like I was going to tell the same story again. And I didn't want to do that. I felt like I wasn't contributing anything new to the conversation. And this has been such an ongoing issue for decades where like little has changed and we're still incarcerating women who have like, pretty clear self-defense claim. So I was like, I just don't want to do the same story again. It's not going to do anything. Actually, there was TV interest in this story a few times, and then it fell through. And it seemed like they kind of wanted like a salacious spin on it. And I don't know, it just didn't feel like the right fit. And I did do one documentary on a woman who killed her abuser. And it was it was great, but it was like a half hour, very tight. It basically just told the story of the quote-unquote crime and gave like a larger you know, take away about how this was a problem, but we didn't have a lot of room to go deep. And I think one of the coolest things that I've found about podcasts is like, you're basically making 10 films if you're doing 10 episodes. And I was like, holy shit, this is like so much work because we're making like 10 consecutive movies almost in audio, you know, interviewing like a thousand people. You know, one episode is about generational trauma. The next episode is about the prison system or the parole system. The next episode is about like these personalities and you never know what you're going to get. And I think that's the part as a listener and as someone who now makes podcasts that I really love is how you don't know what's coming the next episode and you can really just like maneuver around and really tell like, A story is all of these things, right? It's not like some two-dimensional thing. So I think that's really cool.
1: It's very important as well. And we've hinted at the story that Blind Plea is telling. And it's a story of Devin Gray. And I'm wondering if you think that this is a good opportunity to get into her story. It's like stereotypically frustrating. Everything that's happened, you're like, of course that's what why that, you know, of course that's happened to this person and didn't happen to somebody else. Can you give us the background on this?
2: So Devin Gray is a 31-year-old woman now, but she was 25 when this happened. She fell in love with a guy from her home area where she grew up in upstate New York. The relationship started off decently well. They, she was attracted to his like charisma and charm. Their moms actually lived catty-corner to each other. She kind of fell in deep with this guy named John, as is the case in a lot of situations with domestic abuse. He ended up taking her away from her family and friends after a series of circumstances. And Devin had sort of a rough time with college and everything. He basically suggested that they go from upstate New York and take this insanely long bus ride down to Alabama where he's from. Devin agreed. He promised her that he was going to sort of build her her dream home and all these big promises. They get down there and they're actually instead in this like really ramshackle property with a bunch of like busted up trailers. It's totally not what he said. They're basically like living in a tent with no water. And things kind of escalate from there over the course of their six-year relationship. You know, according to Devin, and there's lots of evidence to show that there was like very serious domestic abuse by John and a lot of alcohol use, all culminating in the crime that the show revolves around, which is Devin shot John and what she says was self-defense. Yeah, she was charged with murder. She was taken to jail and then prison. And she ultimately took a blind plea for manslaughter. So a lesser charge, but basically a blind plea is where you agree to a sentence and you don't even know what you're going to get. You basically just say, I'm guilty and leave it up to the judge. Yeah. Despite a ton of evidence of the abuse that was sort of ignored In court, and so we go really deep in the show, exploring exactly what happened here, because there are a lot of Devons out there. She's not the only one, and her story, as Kristen mentioned, got almost no coverage when it happened. There were like a few like local news blurbs, and of course, they say like "woman kills man in domestic disturbance," and you're like, "What does that even mean? Like, what is the story behind the story here?" And unless someone's asking, or unless you have a good lawyer, it's like, "Yeah, she murdered him." In cold blood. And then, of course, Devin is black and John is white. And so definitely dynamics of race came into play in her in her hearings and gender for sure. I'm
0: curious about the abuse. What kind of abuse
2: yeah. So there was evidence of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. There's actually 14,000 text messages that we were able to access between John and Devin. And something for me as a journalist, when I'm working on a story like this, that's crucial is documents because people lie in every story I've ever done. I think someone's lied to me. A lot of people have lied to me. Um, everyone does it to protect their self and their story. And The one thing that doesn't lie is documents and real time text messages between people because it's what they really were saying without thinking anyone was going to read it. So, in a lot of the text messages, John acknowledges his abuse or apologizes for it. It's really horrific. I mean, I've covered domestic abuse now for like four or five years and I still get kind of like shocked by the stories I hear because they're so intense and graphic. On the night of itself, if we're even just keeping it to that, he, um, Seemingly pistol whipped her, busted her eardrum open, there were fractures in her face, um, dragged her across the floor with, you know, like a rusty nail that got cut in her back, shot at her in the bathroom. Devin has always said, like, I think the emotional wounds were somehow more intense than the physical ones. And that stuck with her more. Yeah, and sexual too, which is really horrific as well.
0: Yeah, and you drew some comparisons in the show to the abuse, to uh, like human trafficking and how that gets started.
2: Yeah, so I've reported a little bit on human trafficking and this story immediately reminded me of that because the tactics of the abuser or the trafficker are often the same, which is to isolate and really get a person away, a victim... Away from everything they know, all of their touchstones, anyone they could ask for help. So by the end, De- and even really the beginning in Alabama, she couldn't really contact her family, her friends. They're many states away. John allegedly monitored her phone. He had surveillance cameras. And, you know, in trafficking, that often, often happens as well, where a person just feels like there's no one they can even contact for help. And, you know, sometimes it's physical isolation and sometimes it's also just. Like, fear, right? So, like, Devin could have called her family more often, but John told her that he would kill her or kill her dad if she did. So then she did it.
1: The first question that I think a lot of people have when they start listening to the show and then, you know, kind of on the side doing some research on their own into Devin and her situation is, how is this not, like, a open and closed self-defense case? I mean, the day of the attack, she's literally defending herself. Like... He's trying to kill her. How does somebody get 15 years for defending themselves?
3: I mean, that was something I was going to bring up when Liz was just kind of going through all the corroboration. That's what's always so shocking to us as journalists is that, you know, we know how to corroborate these kind of things. Like we do our due diligence and we check all the sources and the documents and this and that. And then, for instance, you know, in this case, the cop said it was an open and closed case, but that she, you know, murdered him in cold blood. So they came away, the investigator came away with a completely different conclusion than we did. You know, Liz can talk more about examples of this, but you see this happen time and time again. And of course, you know, there's a power dynamic at play. So oftentimes when the victim or survivor fights back, it's not at the time that we might deem reasonable. So, for instance, Devin shot John when he was lying down because that's when there was a break in the violence. Typically, these cases come down to that very moment when the gun or the weapon was used. And sometimes it's not in the struggle. And that's just a very myopic, narrow way, I think, of handling these cases.
2: Yeah, it's almost never at the moment. Like, that's basically... A lot of advocates say like our definition of self-defense is very masculine because it makes all these assumptions like it's two guys in a fight at a bar and one is bigger than the other. But, you know, they are fighting and then one of them ends up, you know, giving the guy a concussion. Actually, he dies or whatever. But it's like when it's an abuse situation, you have one person who's like significantly bigger than the other often. And, you know, the woman, maybe the only way she can defend herself is with a weapon. Again, it's not happening in the precise moment of violence. So you're not going to defend yourself at the exact moment when someone's strangling you. Like, that's not going to happen, but that would be self-defense. But if they strangle you, and then you're able to get the gun after they move away from you, and then you shoot them, that's not self-defense. I think that is something that I've always felt covering these cases. Our system needs to do a better job at addressing, like, what is imminent danger? So for Devin, her lawyer said... And other people said to us, Devin tells the truth to a fault. And so she said, like, they said, how much time passed before you shot him? She was like, I don't know, maybe five minutes. And like, that's done. You're, You're done. You're going to prison. You know what I mean? So that is definitely the reason that Devin got that sentence. But I think the racial and gender dynamics also played a role for sure.
3: And something just outrageous that I want to underline is that the investigator didn't even believe that she was abused that night. Like we have, I think that's kind of the most enraging piece of tape maybe in episode two is that he, you know, he didn't even believe it even though she had injuries and there were photos, etc.
1: And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program.
1: I mean, it really goes back to, like, this— I don't want to get, like, all historic and angry about it, but— Go ahead. Like, how far can the husband beat his wife before it's illegal? I mean, there's still loopholes in this country for marital rape. Like, you can still do that to your wife. And that's, like, shockingly barbaric and disgusting. There should be something in place here. Like, it's not— Not every single situation in a self-defense case is the same thing. So there should be something where it's like— Okay, maybe she didn't shoot him right during the attack, but look at all of the evidence leading up to this. Months and months and months of abuse. Like That should come into play. And I just don't understand why changes can't be made in this. Is that part of the goal with the show, is to like push for change?
2: I've always been uncomfortable with being an advocate because I'm a journalist, but I think the longer that I've been a journalist on a particular beat, I feel like if you know enough information and you have enough analysis, then it's actually your job to like be on the line of almost advocating. And so like, or at least informing people who are doing the advocacy. And yeah, I think that's something we bring up in the show is like having social workers instead of police um, respond to domestic violence or having law enforcement be more or judges be more trauma informed so they actually have like knowledge and actually the investigator in the show we bring up later how he himself grew up with domestic abuse and still he's not seeing it and so why is that i think the psychology is probably pretty deep but like getting people like that training so that they can recognize when they see something. And also like the whole system of like a prosecutor, right? Their job is to prove someone guilty, whether or not they think that they are or they aren't. Um, and I think there's a lot of conversation right now about prosecutorial misconduct and having our prosecutors serve a different function, which is obviously supposed to be pursuing justice, not just pursuing a guilty charge at all costs just to like look good or get promotions or whatever the case might be. Yeah. And I'll
3: say something else that we talked about in the show is like, by the time the public hears about these stories, it's almost like too late, right? Like that we have to like then change the law. Like the damage has already been done. Devin's already in prison. It's like, how can we get to these people sooner? Like with some sort of intervention or therapy, or just some sort of social safety net that can kind of, because domestic violence is everywhere. It's all around us. It's in all of our communities. It happens to every race, every class. And so I think that's like the big question is how do we get to it before it enters, you know, the criminal legal system?
0: Yeah. And it seems like part of the narrative that uh, law enforcement went with was John had another girlfriend and that Devin was upset. And that seems to be a more reliable motive for them. Like it just, it makes more sense to them, I guess, sort of an older school mentality. The clips with her are really interesting. Did you find that she was lying about what happened?
2: I mean, we can't say for sure. Right. But I uh, and actually and the, the other woman whose name is Alexis, we talked to her mother and talked to people who knew her, but she didn't want to talk to us, which I think is understandable given it doesn't the show doesn't exactly make her look great. But, you know, is the question is, is Alexis lying or was John lying to Alexis? There's a lot of questions about who was lying, we kind of delve into that in the show. And a lot of listeners have sent me emails about like what they think really happened. Yeah. I think that was also a really shocking thing to dive deep on is how much law enforcement made it about this other woman and the whole trope around like being jealous when the text messages never show Devin as like a jealous, angry vengeful person. And if they had, we would have, you know, pursued that line and and looked more deeply at that. And then, you know, there's a whole, uh, there's a threesome that happens at some point between Alexis and Devin and John months before the shooting. And they tried to, the prosecutor and detective tried to use that threesome as evidence that that would have been why Devin would have killed John months later. And, And Devin sort of said, like, I think if I was angry about that, that would have happened like sooner. (laughs) And actually, you know, more powerfully, what she said is I was actually grateful that John was with this other woman because it meant he abused me less and that like his demands for sex were less. And so there's just so much going on that the investigator and prosecutor just totally ignored in favor of this like old, lame narrative that like women are killing, you know, in revenge, which not to say that it doesn't happen. But there was just We couldn't find in our team like evidence that that was the case at all.
1: With everything that's happened to her, as you're putting this together and you want to approach her, what's your process? How do you approach someone who's in this situation and gain their trust?
2: I mean, I've learned over the course of doing these kinds of stories. I've done a lot of training on trauma-informed interviewing and how to talk to someone who's experienced a lot of trauma. And I think it's really important for journalists or anyone else um like there were things that I learned along the way from the initial stories I did like I remember a mistake that I still cringe about is like asking someone to repeat the story of the night of like many times because I needed to fact check it I was writing a story for a big magazine and I was just like wanting to make sure I had every detail correct and I just like kept going over it with her you know I think one of the times that I did she burst out crying and I just I think that was the point in which I took it upon myself to like really get some deeper training on it. And I think obviously that's an example of re-traumatizing someone as you're interviewing them. And so with this podcast, I actually never interviewed Devin about the night of until like a year into us talking. I didn't need to because I had all these documents and I had her interviews. I just was like, I'm we're going to wait until it's important and then we'll get her voice on it. we did talk to her about it several times. We didn't like go over it a million times, you know, also just gaining someone's trust, being like a real human, and like genuinely caring about their story is just paramount. And, you know, I do care a lot about Devin and we talked for a long time about nothing. Like I just would ask her about like, what's up with your day? Like, what'd you eat today? And she would like ask about my niece, like just having normal conversations and not really re-traumatizing someone is like the most important thing in this kind of journalism to me.
3: Well, I'll just say from an audio perspective, like when I first started listening to the phone calls with Devin and Liz, those were some of my favorite moments. It wasn't the moments about the crime or, you know, the night of, it was just like hearing about Devin's life in prison and just hearing about like what music she listens to and like how she feels about love and like how she eats nachos in prison and how exciting that is on her birthday. Like just those kind of like mundane moments, hearing her be a real person and the ups and downs of like being incarcerated like that those were some of the like best moments to listen to as well
1: and a follow-up on that behind the scenes was the difference in race between the two of you ever an issue
2: i don't think devon would say it was because when i've asked her about it she grew up in a predominantly white community and she's just sort of like dismissive of it but i think i mean it always matters right like there's stuff i don't I wouldn't get. And I think Kristen has been like an amazing leader on this team and just making sure there's a ton of diversity on this podcast team. I think that was like really crucial in telling this story well and doing it right. I think like every member of the team just really contributed like really important context and helped push us um, in our thinking. Yeah, it probably wouldn't have been great for like a 10-person white team to make this story. It just would have been lacking for sure.
0: Tell us about just Blind Pleas. I know it is the name of the show. What is it? Why is it used? And how did Devin accept this Blind Plea?
2: We researched Blind Pleas for a while. And one thing that I found startling was how many experts I called. They were experts in plea bargains. They were experts in sentencing. They were experts in criminal criminal justice and they were like, I don't know what a blind plea is. I honestly don't know what you're talking about. My theory after looking into this for months is actually that blind pleas primarily take place in the Midwest and the South, and we have kind of a bias in our media field towards the coasts like New York and LA and things like that. So a lot of the experts I was originally calling were in those places where blind pleas are more rare or don't happen at all. But they're actually very common in some jurisdictions and a little rarer in others, like Oklahoma, for example, does a ton of blind pleas. Alabama does a lot of blind pleas. Um, Illinois, where I live now, does a lot of blind pleas. And they have other names too, like open pleas um, or pleading straight up. And basically, you are just throwing yourself at the mercy of the judge. So you have decided with your lawyer, and the prosecutor has agreed as well, that you're going to take this plea deal and you're going to say, I'm going to plead guilty to manslaughter or murder or whatever the case might be, maybe a DUI. And you can sentence me to anything within this range of like whatever the guidelines are. And the judge picks where that falls. So you're, to me, I think we compare it to like a demented game show (laughs) in the show, because it's like, but you're like spinning the wheel for your life and like how many years you're going to get. I just find that so wild. And I think maybe people don't know that plea bargains actually make up like the vast majority of how our cases get adjudicated in this country. So it's not like most things go to trial, like whatever we see on TV, trials are so rare. Most people take plea bargains. And then there's a segment of that that they're taking these blind pleas. And it's often when you basically decided that if I go to trial, it's going to be a lot worse for me and the judge is a better option for whatever reason. And we found in this case, like her lawyer, Devin's lawyer knew the judge. And so he basically was like, I think the judge is going to do me a solid because he got me a job back in the day. I know him. So let's just go this route. And we found that pretty disturbing. Like it's kind of like a good old boys club of basically like, I know you, you know me. So I'll give her less than 20 years. You know what I mean? That just doesn't feel like justice. And I think that was the part that we really wanted to explore and talk about on the show, because it just feels like a very undercovered area.
3: And I'll just add, I don't think that Devin's case is the only case in which that happens. Like some of the other lawyers we talked to in Alabama, that's what they said was, usually there's a conversation with the judge ahead of time. I'm not going in totally blind. I know this judge, you know, and we had a conversation off the record. So here's how I think it's gonna go, which, yeah, it's pretty effed up that you have to have some sort of relationship or in. We'll be right back after a quick word from our
0: sponsor.
1: And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program.
2: Have you
0: found examples where it worked out for the person who pled guilty, like worked out better for them too, though?
2: I mean, Devin's might be an example of that. She got 15 years and had she gotten 16 or more, she would have had to serve every single day of her sentence. But because she got 15 or less, she had good time, which means if you are on good behavior, you can essentially have your sentence. And a lot of the cases, it's like people whose crimes do not look good to a jury. So Devon's might not look, have looked good to a jury because she's a, a black woman killing a white man in a place where interracial marriages were banned until like the year 2000. So that's one reason. Or maybe it's a DUI and you hit someone and so you think like jurors are not going to look favorably on that obviously or it's a murder like a murder where someone thinks like hey the emotions of the case are going to run high with the, with the jury so i mean there's definitely advantages to taking a blind plea it just i think again it gets to this idea of like what is actual justice in like in a more objective fair way and like we've always said that juries should be like a you know, a group of your peers making a decision about something. And in this case, with the judge, just one person, even if there's a conversation over our hand, you really don't know how that person's going to rule.
1: Can we get into the history of John a little bit? Is there anything that we can learn about his background that we can take from and say things can be done differently? Or there's some red flags or anything positive we can take out of this person?
3: I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying before, like, clearly, we open up this series with this idea of generational violence. And, you know, John's grandma was a survivor of domestic violence and killed his step grandfather on the same property where he later took Devin. it's like see something say something you know so often i think like that's what we found is like there's this culture of like it's everywhere so we're becoming desensitized to it mm-hmm. and we're not going to step in and we're not going to say something and there's just like a lot of generations where it persists yeah i don't i'm I'm like, what can we learn from this, Liz? Like, how do we do better? There was
2: times interviewing people about John where you feel like just so upset about this person and everything they did, everything he did to Devin. And then there were other times where I really felt for John, just knowing that he grew up with his mom who said that she faced severe domestic abuse from John's dad and then went on to date other abusive partners. All this is happening in front of John when he's a little kid. And then, like Kristen said his grandmother shooting her abusive spouse on the same exact property 40 years earlier, which is just like a wild connection. And you're like, Oh my God, it's such a coincidence. No, it's not a coincidence. It's like you can see the domino effect going down the generation. So, I mean, I think what Kristen said is right. It's, it's to me, it's domestic abuse thrives. And this is something advocates will always say like in the darkness and in people not talking about it. If you just start to notice warning signs and red flags within your own community and people you know, friends, family, extended family, whatever, and ask questions, I think that's like a good place to start because a lot of people knew about Devin's abuse and probably knew about the things that John witnessed as a kid too. And it's like, did anyone step in or say anything? And so, you know, John is a victim too, of experiencing severe violence. And I think we quote one expert on the show who says something equivalent to lines of like, no one's first experience with violence is using it. And that just like haunts me. (laughs) Like basically someone they've had violence inflicted upon them first. I think that is what I think about a lot with John.
0: What happened legally when his grandmother shot uh, his grandfather?
2: Her name is Mama Cat, his grandmother, and she went to trial. And according to John's aunt, it was the shortest trial she's ever seen in her life. I think she was up for a hefty sentence and she got nothing and walked away free.
3: On self-defense. On (laughs) self-defense.
2: But Mama Cat uh, was white. And also Mama Cat said that she defended him in the moment of violence. Which, you know, Devin could have said, too. And did Mama Cat defend him in the exact moment of violence? Maybe. Maybe not. But basically, she said she took her pistol out of her purse and shot him.
0: I can't help thinking Devin should be a free woman today.
1: So what is uh, Devin's sentence? I know 15 years. And then when is she eligible? She was denied parole immediately, too. Right.
2: Kristen was actually at the parole hearing where she was denied parole and sat in on that. Gosh, where do I begin? I mean, basically, there
3: was no one there in support of Devin. You know, Devin can't go to her own parole hearing. The defendant's family could come. The victim, in this case, John his family could have claimed, but neither side showed up. So it was just really the state that was there to speak on their behalf. Um, it was kind of like crickets and it went by really fast. The parole board, there were only two parole board members there that day deciding her fate and they decided in five minutes that she would not get off on parole. And so, yeah, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but essentially parole is a huge problem in Alabama right now. And it it's just dropped to historic lows, where there's evidence that these people won't reoffend, and they're still not getting let out. And so Devin was just an example of that. And so after the parole hearing, her release date was set to April 2024, and there are a lot of developments in that realm in Devin's case, so y'all will have to listen to the end to follow along and figure out and find out what happens with her.
1: Kristen, are you sure you don't want to get into the nuances and the intricacies of parole in Alabama at minute 40 of this conversation?
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's so complicated and it's so um, daunting. Like, it's just so... Convoluted and sad, really. Like, there were so many, no one, I sat through a day of parole hearings, no one got off. And I spoke to a lot of family members who were just devastated. One um, man in particular who was in for an armed robbery um, when he was 16 years old was still in prison in his 30s, and his whole family was there. His younger sisters were there. And it was just devastating. He's been in for, you know, 15 plus years for an armed robbery when he was a teenager. And no one was hurt. (laughs) You know, no one was injured. It wasn't like a murder you know? So yeah, it's, it's rough, but I encourage you all to listen to episode eight.
1: I'm wondering if there's a uh, turning point that you both had, I guess in the production of the show, not so much like, Oh, listen to episode four, because that's a turning point, but for yourselves, like emotionally, did you have this moment during the production where you realize like something like some turning point?
3: I mean, I would say that this whole time we were like starting off on this Right. We had like the story of Devin. Right. And like, why was she punished was kind of like the question. But so much more happened. And I think it all revolves around the ADOC, the Alabama Department of Corrections, where like we knew from the beginning that it was convoluted and that they weren't quite playing by the rules. But like as the podcast unfolded, and as our reporting unfolded, like it was like, holy shit, the things that started to happen were so unfortunate for Devin. But from a journalist perspective, it was like, oh my gosh, like we are really showing and not telling at this point. And so I think that was big for us. Like you just couldn't believe it was happening. And there was just so much to explore. Like usually once you get to the end of a series you're like tying it up in bows and like that was not happening at all with this series
2: in episode 8 when we get into the parole hearing there's also like a pretty dramatic scene where myself and one of our team members almost get arrested for trying to visit Devin in prison and I think that was a turning point for me just to realize that I had become emotionally invested and really upset (laughs) By just the cumulative effect of covering these cases for so many years and seeing the same thing happen again and again. And just the kind of bureaucratic machinations that really had like devastating impacts on people's personal lives. How little people knew about that. Like, I think we think of prison and we're like, oh, we know it's bad because might be like prison fights and you have to like sleep on the ground and you're you know, away from your family. And like, we know all this, but we don't know is all of these like nitty gritty, like bureaucratic snafus that actually like ruin people's lives over and over again. And like Kristen said, that's kind of something that we were able to show in real time. And I think it's like wild when people start to see it. And it's like, Oh, these little things that go to like break a person down. Like that is what prison does to you almost more than like any big you know, like abuse scandal in a prison or something. So I think that's something that's like harder to for people to wrap their heads around. But I think that was like a turning point for me that it was breaking me down. I'm outside, fine, happy, like whatever. Yeah, I think that was that was the turning point.
3: And I'll also just say meeting Devin in person. Liz had so many phone calls with her, but I eventually did make it into the prison to meet her. And that was huge. I think just being in the same room as someone that was so important to our team that we actually got to spend some in-person time with her. Cause ultimately I think the podcast does have a point of view and like, you know, it was just really important that we met her. And so that was, that was huge. And I think like the civil right, we I went inside with a civil rights attorney and he also got to meet Devin and he had done a lot of work on domestic violence. And so after meeting her, he was just like, wow, this is a textbook case. Like we went away feeling like she was so authentic and really telling the truth.
0: Well, amazing work you two and your whole team and uh, we will be listening to the end of Blind Plea. And are you planning a season two?
3: I mean, there's enough there to do a season two, but we need a we need a little break first.
0: Well, thank you both for uh, joining us here today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you guys. It's such thoughtful questions.
3: Thanks for having us, and thanks for listening.